The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're going to be looking again this morning in the book of Job, another big big chunk of uh, scripture from chapter 21 through 27, um, but we'll begin just by reading uh, what really becomes the, the climax of the first section, the first ch- um, major section of the book in in chapter 27. So if you want to follow as I read Job 27, verses 1 through 12. And this really frames what is uh, Job's final uh, response to his friends who have uh, been attacking him uh, for his suffering. So this is what Job says in answer to kind of all of their speeches and all their conversation. Job said again, Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? Um, Many years ago, I think like a long, long time ago, a guy named Dale Carnegie wrote a book called um, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I've titled my sermon, How to Lose Friends and Influence No One. And, uh, and I'm suggesting that Job's friends write that book because they, they really have got this down. How to, like, how to win, uh, you know, lose friends. And, and really that's what happens at, at the end of this, this speech section. So this really makes up the first uh, major part of the book. Uh, and chapter 27 becomes kind of a hinge between the two halves of the book. And uh, we come to the end of the first half with these three cycles of debate between uh, Job and his, his friends, his com- comforters. <laughs> um, but in the end, we see that uh, they, they are anything but comforting. And they've done anything but, but really be friends to Job. And in the end, they really part. So I just read this section where, where he, he says, let, let my enemy be as the wicked. Let my enemy be as the people who God is going to judge. And he's really directing that at his friends. He's like, look, you guys have become my enemy. May God curse you. That's a great way. So this has gone well, right? This is really ending well for, for him and his friends. Um, and in the end, uh, Job just holds firmly to his righteousness and, and actually, as we'll see, Job really wins the, the debate. Like if you look at this as a debate between him and his friends, 
Job wins, hands down. Um, he holds to his integrity and his righteousness. His friends have not convinced him that his suffering is a result of anything he's done wrong, any sin in his own life, even though they have tried uh, repeatedly. But the problem is that winning the debate doesn't really solve anything for Job, right? Uh, there's no consolation in winning this particular debate. Um, uh, their friends, if, they were, if their goal was to encourage Job, they failed terribly, and it's only made them enemies. Um, and, and not only that, but we see both sides moving really farther away from each other and actually farther from truth. Right? They're, they're just getting more backed into their own corners, more defensive, holding on to their, each of their own positions. Um, so, so we see here that Job is not only suffering from this great tragedy of loss and disaster, uh, but now he feels attacked and condemned by his friends, right? He's more alienated from God than ever. Um, and his friends, despite Job's really superior answers on logic, uh, they go away feeling more arrogant and smug than ever, right? So people just get more entrenched in their positions. Um, and, and, and Job ends up in even lower realms of discouragement, right? And um, as we look at this, and this is not really the main focus or point of the book necessarily, but I think it's just good to pause and make some observations that all too often we can be friends like Job's friends. And if you don't believe it for ourselves, we've all experienced it, right? We've all had problems and struggles and, and hurt in our life. And we've probably all had friends who come along who make us feel a lot like Job's friends. Um... And, and even, even the most well-meaning friends can end up dragging down those who are hurting rather than encouraging them. This, this is what happens here. Um, through, through really what becomes very misguided help. Best of intentions, but it just goes wrong and leaves people feeling more discouraged, uh, more hopeless, and further from God. So uh, we want to look a little bit what we can learn really from Job's uh, friends' failed attempts as counselors and as encouragers uh, and think about how it can instruct us as we help those who are hurting. Now, of course, maybe you're a person who is hurting and, and you need friends, but not friends like Job's, right? So how do you seek out the right kind of friends who are going to be uh, more helpful? Uh, before we jump in, jump in, let me just give a, a, a brief bit of context about the book that helps us really understand what all is going on here. And it's important to realize that, that this is really written, as I said before, kind of more like an opera <laughs> or a screenplay. It's, it's very scripted, right? It is not history. Now, does that mean Job wasn't a real person? Well, I think he probably was, but that's not really the point. It doesn't actually matter if he was real or not, because it's really about the script, right? It's about this dialogue, right? It is wisdom literature, not a biography. And and most of the Bible uh, doesn't fall in this category, right? Most of the Bible in the Old Testament is either narrative, which is historical, or it's prophetic, which is also rooted in, in historical events. But this is wisdom literature, and as wisdom literature, it's very literary. In other words, it's the script that matters, not the event. Right? So does, does Job have to be real? Well, no, actually he doesn't. 
uh, if he's real or not real, it doesn't change the point of the book. Whereas, like, if you take Abraham, if you say, Abraham, did he need to be real? Well, yes, he did, right? The whole nation of Israel came from him. If he didn't exist, then there's a problem, right? But Job doesn't actually even need to be a person. Uh, I think he was. Um, but, but the events, the, the facts of the story, the events are not what, what the book is about. The book is about these speeches. And these speeches are very crafted. Uh, they're very scripted. Did these guys really say this? Well, probably not, right? It's too, it's too scripted. It's too crafted. And you see, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an author creating this literary tool to teach uh, and wrestle with uh, some theological problems, right? So, um, so, so it has very little to do with the, the actual events or circumstances, the, the events that go on. So it's one of the dangers of looking at the book of Job is we want to take these, this, this account in heaven and this account on earth and make it historical fact that this is how God works, like, this is what God's doing up in heaven. Um, that's not true, okay? Uh, the story was crafted uh, very strategically to deal with a problem. And everything, both the events and the text, are scripted, crafted, to wrestle with this problem. Right? So we don't want to apply this book to think this is kind of how God operates in the world. This is how life is in terms of the events, right? Uh, um, and, and it's important to understand that... Um, the book was written to answer a very specific question. And, and what's written is very selective. Right? So the way the speeches are crafted, the way they interact with each other, the author has, has selected very carefully dialogue and script that matches the problem he's trying to deal with. Right? And so we can't take it all too literally. Um, and we, we, what's more importantly for us is that we can't take what's going on in the book of Job and just apply it to our question, right? We have to, we have to apply it to Job's question, not, not our question, our, our question. And our question has a lot more to do with uh, not why do righteous people suffer, which is a problem in the book here, uh, and it has to do with this, this merit system, right? Do good, get good. Does that system of do good, get good, does karma basically work? Does, does the principle of karma or merit explain how God operates in the world? That's the question this book is wrestling with. Our question has more to do with why did God allow evil to come in the world in the first place? Right? And that was not a problem for the context of the book of Job. They, they weren't thinking about that. They hadn't, that hadn't dawned on them yet. Uh, that's more of an issue for us. Well, it's really important that we don't try to import the message of Job onto that question. Because if we do, uh, we'll create, you know, this is what happens when you like breed a a giraffe with an elephant, right? You get a really weird animal, right? And so we don't want to do that. So with with that backdrop in mind, let's get back to the topic of today. What can we learn from Job's friends about how not to help those who are hurting, right? Because um, we, we want to be friends who are more encouraging. So first thing we've got to do is back, back up just a little bit and see that Job does win. And we're going to just blow through this real quickly. I'm not going to dig too deep into this. But Job does win the debate, convincingly, right? Uh, in chapter 22, Eliphaz starts off, uh, first one up, in, the, in this third cycle. So they've gone through this three times. Each one has got a chance to share and blast Job. And so Eliphaz gets up for the third time. 
he uh, gets up to the batter's box so he can smack Job. And he says um, the same thing that they've just been saying on, on and on over and over. Uh, they just keep coming back to their, their main basic argument uh, that this principle of merit, do good, get good, can be turned upside down. And if the principle is true, if you do good, you'll get good things, then the opposite must be true. If you are receiving bad things, you're a bad person. And Job has received lots of bad things. He's suffering. Therefore, Job, you're guilty. You're a sinner. Right? And so uh, Eliphaz says, here's the, here's the solution. Just verse, chapter 22, verse 21, agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Just fess up, right? You're a mess up. You, you failed somewhere, obviously, so just confess. Uh, receive instruction from God's mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, meaning you confess, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, right? And, and just to make sure that uh, Job, you know, because maybe he's thinking, well, you know, Job, maybe he's just not creative enough, Right? Like he doesn't know how to invent some wrong, which is clearly a problem for Job because he's convinced he hasn't. Uh, but for Eliphaz, that's not important. It's like you just invent something. Like just confess something. Here, let me give you some examples. And he gives these not so much as illustrations, but as accusations against Job. He says in verse 5, Is not your evil abundant? Now here's some encouraging words, <laughs> you wicked guy. There is no end to your sin, for you have exacted pledges from your brothers for nothing. And strip the naked of their clothing. How, how do you strip somebody who's naked of their clothing, right? They're already naked. I mean, this is bad, right? You have no clothes, but yet you strip them, right? That's bad. Um, uh, you have given no water to the weary to drink, and you have withheld bread from the hungry. Uh, you've sent widows away empty-handed, and uh, you're just a bad guy. You know? So just pick one, right? Just pick one of these. Uh, interestingly, most of these are what we call sins of omission. So it's not that Job was going out actively hurting the poor, but uh, the charge is you're just not helping them enough. You, know, you just haven't been aware of somebody who needed water, who needed food, who needed clothes. And so it's more a sin of, of omission. You failed uh, to help where you could have. Right? Um, so maybe that's the problem. So just agree with God and be at peace. This will solve your problems, Job, and you can get all of your wealth back. If you would just say the words, I'm sorry, I, I hurt the poor, and God's going to restore to you all your blessings. Because if you do right, you will get prosperity. God's going to bless you. And it's going to fix everything, and then we can go home. We can have lunch. <laughs> right? Um, so, so that, that's, that's Eliphaz. Then uh, Job answers, we'll get to Job's answer in a second, but uh, then the second person gets up as Bildad. And uh, after Job's words to Eliphaz, um, Bildad, by the third round here, doesn't have a lot to say, and his whole speech is, is in six verses. Right? So his, he, he really is getting short. And uh, just to summarize what he says in verse 4, he says, How then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? It's impossible. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in God's eyes. How much less man who is a maggot. <laughs> That's great. Man who's a maggot. You maggot. You son of man who is a worm. You're just a worm and a maggot. Of course you can't be good. You know, you have no hope. You're just a maggot. 
That's encouraging. And you could summarize Bildad's words as, um, God is unimaginably great, and humans are intrinsically small and flawed and don't matter anyway, because you're just a worm, right? So there's some encouraging words. Interestingly, so and, and Job will respond to that in his final speech. Interestingly, we have three characters, right? Zophar is the third one. What does Zophar have to say? Nothing, right? He doesn't even get a speech. He's done. And, 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 and so what you see is that in the end, Job wins, right? First, Eliphaz has a lot to say. Bildad has a little to say. Um, sorry. Uh, uh, Zophar has nothing to say. And then Job ends with this, uh, really what be, is the grand climax or finale of act, uh, what I would call Act 1. This is a screenplay. Imagine th- these first 27 chapters are Act 1. And in Act 1, uh, J- Job decisively wins and he claims victory with these words, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit for, for me to, to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put integrity away from me. I hold fast my righteousness and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. So Job clings to his argument that he has done nothing deserving of wrong, deserving of all this trouble, right? that he is right. And he's not going to just make things up. He's not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend I did something wrong when I'm convinced I didn't. I'm not, that would not be honest. right? And he holds on to this integrity, this idea that he did right regardless of its benefit. Right? Uh, he's not trying to get his wealth back. He, he doesn't. He doesn't care about that. He carries just about cares about righteousness for its sake, goodness for its sake, and he holds on to that. And he says, "My my heart does not reproach me." In other words, uh, I have a clear conscience before God. I, I'm speaking honestly. This is I know in my heart that I have not done anything wrong, right? And and nobody's been able to show me any different. So he just holds this, uh, this fierce determination of his righteousness. And in, in so doing, he really uh, puts an, uh, the, the ultimate answer not only to his friends, but to Satan, the accuser, the challenger, that, uh, that it is possible for people to do good for its own sake. Right? That Job's motive was never just to get benefits. Right? That was not his game. Right? He was not just in this for what he could get out of it. He was truly in it for his own integrity, for his own character, and for God, uh, God's honor, who is, who is right. right? Um, so he wins. Yay, go Job, right? End of book. That was a nice play. I love it when, it, I love it when the good guy wins in a debate. You know, he just silences his, his enemies. It's awesome. But of course the book doesn't end here because his victory is quite a shallow victory. And we see that really nothing good can come from this kind of a win. Right? right? Nothing good. And this is like, this is great for marriage. Right? A little marriage counseling right here. There's times when you win the debate that you really lose. Right? If you haven't figured that one out yet, just take notes. Right? Um, sometimes winning is not really winning. 
And this is one of those times. Nothing good can come out of this. Uh, it has driven this huge wedge between Job and his friends, and it's really distanced both Job and his friends even more from God and from the truth. Um, none, none of them have, uh, have had a, really come to a healthy understanding of what's going on in Job's life. They've only grown into this more twisted ideas on both sides of what's going on. Um, and, and the one problem is that the friends... His three friends have a wrong understanding of God based on a wrong understanding of how God works in the world. Right? So what we see at the end of this, and kind of the big point of the book of this first section as it wrestles with this, is, is wrestling with this idea of karma or the retribution principle, do good, get good, that, that principle. Right? Um, and and that, it, that there's some flaws in it, that it's, it's partly true, but it can't explain how the world works, right? It is in general a principle of how God often works, but it doesn't explain how God always works or how the world always works, right? And what we see is that Job uh, has a claim to a certain kind of righteousness, right? And uh, we can't go into all the details or examples, but let me just summarize that Job has this idea that righteousness is, is, there's clear right and wrong, and that right and wrong can be objectively known. Now, for us, this is not new revelation. For, for, for us, we would go, well, of course. That's what righteousness is. It's right and wrong. It's objective. It's like, don't lie. Tell the truth, right? It's don't steal, uh, but be generous, right? So we, we kind of just, this is ingrained in us, right? But actually, in the ancient world, and remember, this goes back possibly even before Abraham, way back. And way back in the earliest uh, ancient civilization, there was not a clear sense of objective right or wrong. Right? Instead, uh, th- th- there's this idea that, um, uh, that, that the way, the only way actually that you could know if you're doing something right or wrong is not objectively, like a standard, a moral standard, don't lie, don't steal, but it's by uh, the experience of the favor of the gods. Okay, by experiencing the favor of the gods. Because this is how it works. You get up in the morning and uh, you, you eat uh, oatmeal for breakfast and, and today you put raisins in your oatmeal, right? And you go out and you go out through the front door of your house, not the back door of your house, right? And um, you, you go to your little altar and at the altar you give the gods an orange, not an apple. And... and the rest of the day all goes really well. You have a really good, good day. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is eating oatmeal with raisins. It's going out the front door of my house, and it's giving the gods an orange, not an apple. That's righteousness, right? But let's say that, that works, and you do that for several days, and, and it goes pretty well. But then one day, you do all those things, and it doesn't work anymore. You have a bad day. <gasps> What's happened? Well... Maybe the gods decided they're bored of oranges, right? So I need to give him a banana, right? So you've got you to try to figure out what the god wants because the gods don't let you know. It's just a guessing game, right? So you find, oh, it's actually a banana, peeled, <laughs> right? And then things get better again. So, so this is how they started, and I'm kind of exaggerating weird illustrations, you know, but this is how they, they decided what was good and bad. Good is bananas, not oranges. 
Good is doing it this way, not that way. Because it's giving the gods what they want. The gods are fickle. They can't make up their minds. So you just are constantly guessing. So it can never be objective. Right? If, 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 you, uh, if this seems odd to you, just take that understanding and apply it carefully to karmic Buddhism, or Hinduism, for that matter. It's exactly how it works. Right? You go to the temple, and what are people doing at the temple? They're trying to figure out what the gods want, right? Uh, is it Fanta? Is it Red Fanta? Is it Orange Fanta, right? They're, I mean, they're trying, and what will happen is when, when, when they get the right combinations of things and they get a good day, they win the lottery, that's how you know. On the way out, you buy a lottery ticket. If you win, that worked, right? That's the thing. And so I, I do that. That becomes how I understand who God is how he works and what he wants. Right? That all kind of seems silly to us. It sounds so superstitious. But we see it being practiced around us every day, actually. Um, uh, doing right ultimately comes down to giving the gods what they want. Uh, you meet their needs and they in turn will meet your needs. And that's how you decide who this god is, how he works, what he wants, what is right. right? Uh, but but Job says, no, that's not right. Right? Uh, I didn't just guess wrong. I followed objective right and wrong, right? I did take care of the poor. I was honest. I was a person of integrity. And so I can base my, my evaluation of my righteousness based on this objective standard, not just on some God who's fickle, who keeps changing his mind, right? And so in that, Job is right, and the book makes an important theological point in the ancient world, that God is a, is a, is a God who's not fickle, who doesn't need our help, who we don't have to feed him, and so he's always playing these weird games with us about what he wants for lunch. And uh, it doesn't work that way, right? God is a God of objective right and wrong. And he makes it clear to us. He reveals it to us. And we can know if we've done the right thing based on its goodness, on, on the, the moral nature of an act that's being either right or wrong. Right? And that's really, you know... It, the, the, the point of these first 27 chapters. But we also see that Job uh, also, even though he's, he's kind of right, he's also kind of wrong. And uh, he, he also really has uh, many wrong ideas based uh, of God. But his wrong ideas come because he's also basing things not so much on how God works in the big picture in the world, but how he's experienced God personally. Right, this is how I've experienced God working in my life. And so he starts attributing to God characteristics based on his own experience. For example, he, uh, in chapter 1, uh, he feels like God is petty. Like he's just nitpicking these little details of maybe I did some tiny little thing wrong. Or maybe my kids do some tiny little thing wrong. So God's like petty. Um, he talks about God giving and taking away. God gives trouble as well as good. Right? He talks about God hedging him in, squeezing him in. He sees God as having uncontestable power and being over-demanding. He calls God unforgiving, unapproachable, and somebody who abuses his power. <laughs> kind of strong accusations. Uh, he feels that God is remote and unaccountable. And he feels that God is lax in his execution of judgment. Right? None of these things are actually taught anywhere in the Bible. Right? 
And we, we would be uh, off if we, if we think, well, Job's the hero of the story. The things that he says about God must be true. That's not right, right? Job, we see, is also very confused about God. He may be righteous in his conduct, but he does not have a right understanding of who God is. And that's causing a lot of his turmoil because he really doesn't know God. And he's, he's coming up with these kind of crazy notions about God that are coming out of his experience, not out of revelation. Not because God has told him this is who he is. Right? Um, and it's important for us to think, you know, what are we building our ideas about God on? Uh, are we building it on these big observations of how we think God works in the world? Or are we building our idea about God based on what we feel like is our own personal experience with God? Um, if so, we will have uh, absolutely the wrong idea about God. Right? Um, one example, here we talk about God being a father. Now, for some people who have really good fathers, fathers who have been good role models, that can be a very positive image and picture. But maybe you had a terrible father. Maybe you had a father who was mean and abusive and angry and hostile and who just was constantly looking for a way to punish you. Right? Is it pretty easy to take that experience with your own father and project that on our Heavenly Father? Oh, it's very easy, right? Very easy. Think, oh, well, God's a father. He must be angry, short-tempered, just like my dad was, right? Uh, and that's not who God is. That's not what it means when he describes himself as a father. Uh, so where do we get the right understanding of God? Well, uh, we, we know that it has to be on his own revelation of himself, right? His own revelation of himself. Uh, to put it kind of another way, if you want to really find out about a movie star, do you read what's written in the tabloids and in all the, you know, all the gossip? Is that going to give you a clear picture of who the movie star is? Or would you get a much better picture if you actually met them and got to know them personally? Well, hopefully the one personally would give you a much clearer picture. Now, you may find that the tabloids didn't even begin to describe how crazy this person was or how confused or messed up. Um, but meeting the person and how they reveal themselves, how they how they express themselves, how they communicate, right, is how you would really know them. Well, the same is true for God. We cannot know him without, uh, correctly without encountering him as he reveals himself. Well, how does the invisible God of the universe reveal himself? Well, we don't have time to go into all of this, but four ways in creation. The Bible tells us through all that he has made in the word, the Bible, all of it, in the person of Jesus, and most focused in his great redemptive work on the cross. Right? If you want to know who God is, you need to look in those four avenues of revelation. Creation, the word, Jesus on the cross. Right? And, and so the goal is to determine, to understand his nature, his character, his heart, and his being, and how he's revealed himself in those places. Right? All right so that's, um, that kind of gives the backdrop. Uh, Job wins, but he doesn't really win. Um, makes his great point for the first half of the book, which is awesome. Uh, God is not just fickle, and we can know him through revelation, not through guessing by uh, what gets blessed and what doesn't get blessed. But let's, let's switch gears a little bit and now look at 
at kind of this disastrous situation with Job and his friends. Like this, this whole thing just went really bad. Um, but it goes bad in ways that I think represent real life over and over, right? So let me just uh, just give us briefly some, some practical help for how we can be uh, better friends or how not to be bad friends, if you want to put it that way. Um, first thing we see is that Job's friends uh, are quite adamant that they are speaking for God. Okay. Now, when your friends have a problem and you want to straighten them out, you want to encourage them, right? You go to them and you want to share some words of wisdom uh, that will help them, that will solve their problems. And to do that, why should your friends listen to you, right? Well, usually we feel like, well, of course, if they were smart, they wouldn't listen to me because I'm an idiot and I don't know anything, right? But, of course, that's not going to be helpful, So we go to our friends to give advice based on some expertise we have, some authority, right? Well, I'm a doctor. Well, I've been trained. Well, I know the Bible. I can memorize. I've memorized huge chunks of the Bible, right? Oh, I mean, I have experience, right? We we want something to give us, whether through our expertise, education, or qualification, something that shows we have authority to speak into your life. Like, we have... We have power to tell you how to live your life, right? It's a good thing you have me as a friend, because I can tell you how to live, right? Yay for me, right? And, and, and there's no authority like being able to speak for God, right? Well, God told me, right? God told me. Now, hopefully most of us don't go there, because uh, it's just foolish, all right? Even if God did tell you, this is not helpful, right? And I'll talk why in a minute. But, um, but more often what we would say is, well, the Bible says. <clears throat> the Bible says. I have authority. And I'm going to beat you over the head with the Bible until you get some sense in you, right? Uh, does this help? Well, no, right? And this is what Job's friends try. They think they speak for God. God gave me a vision. God has shown me. Uh, I know who God is. And so I'm going to speak for God. Listen to me, Joe, because I'm speaking the voice of God, right? Maybe they use that tone, right? Well, uh, the book shows that they do not know what God is like or how he works in the world. And, and Joe convincingly, as I just showed, turns all their logic upside down. It's like, no, this doesn't even make sense, right? You say that God uh, blesses the good and he judges the bad, but I can show countless illustrations of God blessing the bad. So if God can bless the bad, can't he also uh, allow suffering in the lives of the good? And it, he, he wrecks their logic and, and turns it all upside down and shows that they don't know God. They don't know how God works. Right? Um, uh, and, and, he rebu- and, and in the end, actually, God rebukes these friends for speaking falsely about God. Right? Uh, But do we feel sometimes like we have the right or even the calling to tell people what to do because we know the Bible? You ever had that, like, I know know the answer. I know it will help you, right? Um, And the problem is, uh, is this really what hurting people need? Even if you're right, okay, even if you're right, is this really what hurting people need? Like, I'm suffering, I'm struggling. Is it helpful to say to them, well, you're an idiot, just listen to what the Bible says, right? Let me bump, thump you overhead with the Bible. Is that really what they need? 
I'm not, I'm not sure. Right? I'm not sure. Um, and, and more than that, speaking from a position of authority, it puts us automatically in a place of superiority to them, right? So even if we're right, we come into somebody who's hurting and struggling and we come in as dad or mom, right? As the, as the authority, as somebody over them, instead of somebody coming alongside them. And, and we know from our own experience what happens when somebody comes who wants to be over us. By nature, are we excited about this? Oh, I'm so glad you're just going to take over my life. Uh, this is awesome. Um, no, right? We don't like that. Um, uh, we, we come across with this attitude. We know more. We have it more together. We, we've obviously solved all our problems. Now let me solve yours. Right? It sounds smug and proud and condescending. And, and it's also not realistic about our own suffering. Right? Uh, have you really worked it all out that well? Woe to you if you believe that. Right? Woe to you. I'm going to warn you. Because God can show you very quickly how not together you are in a second. Right? Don't be too proud about how you have figured life out. Right? And, and, and don't let that arrogance come through when we try to encourage others. It's not helpful. It's not helpful. Second, uh, Job's friends were trying to fix Job rather than comfort Job. Okay, they're trying to fix him rather than comfort him, and that's a problem. Uh, and this was their goal from the very start. And it's, again, summed up well in, in Eliphaz, Eliphaz's final speech where he says, Just agree with God and be at peace and good will come to you. I know the problem. I know the solution. If you would just take my advice, it'll fix everything. Life will be better. We can all be happy. Right? Um, he doesn't really care about comforting Job. He just wants to fix him. He's a project, right? And they wrongly think that their advice will solve uh, all the problems and fix Job. Right? But they, as we see, they actually have no idea what the problem is. They are 100% wrong about why Job is suffering. Right, so if they don't know the problem, how can they fix it? Right? And, and, and that's the trouble we get into. Right? We think we know the problem, and so we think we know the solution. We assume that we've got it covered, and so we come in with our advice to fix people. Uh, we'll see in a minute why our advice doesn't usually work, but the more than that, the first thing people need is not to be fixed. They need to be comforted. Right? They need encouragement. Because whatever the solution is, it's not going to be that easy. Right? And they, they need some encouragement to come along to be able to walk down the path of, of help that they need. Um, uh, third thing, we see that really in the end, his friends don't actually care about Job's story at all. Right? He's just a project. They assume they know what's going on. And so they only hear and see the outward problem, not, and they, they never listen well enough to, to, to hear the deep inner struggle of their friend. Right? They assume that Job is sad because he lost everything. Why? Well, because that's why they would be sad. right? Because they are not like Job. Job actually is a man of character and integrity. They're actually kind of losers who who do good only because of its benefit. And so they can't actually understand why Job would do something good for any other reason. 
Right? So they, they assume he's just like them. And, and so they don't actually hear that that's not what he's wrestling with. Job actually doesn't care about his loss. I mean, it's, it's painful, I'm sure, but, but that's not his bigger concern. All right? Job is more concerned about his own righteousness, his own character, his own integrity, that he is uh, truly righteous for the right reasons. But they never listen close enough to get any glimpse of that. Right? Um, and and this, is, this is one we can easily fall into, right? We assume because we have experiences similar to somebody else that the cause of their problem is the same as the cause of my problem, right? So a person complains they have a stomach ache. And we get stomach aches when we drink coffee. So we tell them, stop drinking coffee and you won't have stomach aches anymore, right? It worked for me. It surely will work for you, right? And, and that's what we do. We assume that their problem is my problem and that the thing that worked for me will work for them and, and it's just that easy. Boom, I'll fix you, right? Um, uh, instead, um, you know, they need to listen, right? And the, the problem is not that we don't want to help. The problem is it's hard to watch other people suffer and struggle, right? And, and our friends hurt and we see their hurt and pain <clears throat> And we too, I'm sorry, we too quickly want to uh, fix them so they, they're not hurting anymore. Ooh. I'm going to fix myself with some water here. So right now I don't. All right. Okay, so. We, so we jump to conclusions based on our own experience instead of really listening to their story. Last thing we see their friends, his friends doing is, uh, and this is the worst, attacking people when they don't listen. Right? Now, this is helpful. And this is, but that's exactly what they do. His friends, uh, they just start getting frustrated with Joe because he won't take their cheap advice, right? Their authority. And so when they... Job's not cooperating. They go into attack mode, right? They argue and debate even more furiously. And, and eventually they start making just all out blind accusations. Well, Job, you clearly sinned. And if you don't believe this, let us tell you how you've messed up, right? Because they have no proof or evidence. They're just making these assumptions. And it's important to see that they think they're helping, right? Because they think if they fix Job's problem, everything will be better, Right? But that's not really what Job needs and not even what's going on. Um, so if he won't accept their advice, they just need to yell louder. Right? And, and can, can we do this? Well, we don't see ourselves doing this because we think we're being helpful. Right? We think we know what's going to help people and we're so determined to fix them that when they are a little resistant or defensive, we just push harder and we just argue more passionately. We get more Bible verses and we say them more loudly. You know, right? And we think that's going to make it better. Well, I don't think so. Right? And, and at the root of it is that we, we just become so overly confident that we have the right answers. And the real answer is actually not answers or solutions as we'll see in a minute, the real answer is God himself, right? And so if we're trying to cast the problem in terms of solutions, answers, fixing things, 
right? Even with the authority of the Bible behind it, we're not going to be helpful ultimately, right? So what does Job need? What do our hurting friends need? How can we really help people? Well, I think uh, what Job needs is a couple of things. And Job does need help. He does need help, okay? He needs encouragement, and he needs to get on a different track. Right? He's on a bad track that's leading him in the wrong direction. And he needs to, somebody to kind of turn him in a different path, right? So what does he need? Well, I believe, and, and again, I, uh, I want to encourage us how to be friends who come alongside our friends who are hurting. I'm not, this is not a class on how to become a professional counselor, okay? Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot more to it, right? And there's a, a lot to helping people. And I'm not saying these four little things are going to make you a, a, an amazing counselor who's going to be able to come alongside and help everybody. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying as friends who, who see people struggling and hurting and, and dealing with heavy things, Right. How can we be one voice of help, one voice who comes alongside and helps them um, get pointed in a better, healthier direction? So the first thing I think, Job needs a friend who will point him to God rather than just giving answers. Right? Uh, a friend who will point us, us or point our friends to seek God as a person more than just answers or solutions. Because in the end, what people really need is God, the person, the being, right? The, the relationship with the living, personal being, God, who's, as we talked last week, who's not just only righteous. He is righteous, but he's righteous and loving. He is goodness and truth. He is mercy and faithfulness. And he is compassion and wrath, right? All of these things, he's a person, right? And we need to encounter him in all that he is, um, and we see with, with Job, and this is true for all, a lot of us, when life goes bad, one of the first results is that our concept of God deteriorates, right? Our thoughts about God easily starts to slip into a bad un, place of untruth, right? We start thinking, is God really good, right? Does God care about me? Is he angry with me? Is he punishing me for some sin I've done? Am I guilty? Um, will God help me? Can God help me? Right? Is God powerful enough to help me in my current situation? Um, is God as remote and, and as distant as it feels like right now? Right? Um, when, when, when we struggle, these, these thoughts can come racing into our mind. right? And our picture of God that on Sunday morning when we're singing these great worship songs, high and exalted, you know, all of a sudden he's not quite so exalted. And, and no, no, pretty soon he's down here and like, I don't even think he cares. Like, where is God, right? That's what happens. And then that's what happens to Job. And he's making uh, the mistake that, that we could make by painting this picture of God's character based on his own experiences. And he's coming to very wrong conclusions about God, right? So we, we suffer pain, we suffer hardship, and we assume God hates me. He's punishing me. I, I have disappointed him, and he's out to get me. Now, of course, we may have good theology, and we say, oh, yeah, oh, but God is love. But in our heart, we're feeling, yeah, he might be love, but he's still out to get me, right? I feel like God's my enemy, right? 
And so when, when we are struggling, one of the greatest things we can do for anybody is to get them back uh, seeing who God really is, right? Um, lifting up uh, the nature, character, and, and being of God based on what he's revealed about himself in creation, in the word, in Jesus, and in the cross, right? So let's look at who, G- who God really is. You feel like he's distant, but there's tons of scriptures that talk about how, how near he is, Right? If we, would, if we would draw near to God, we must believe that he exists and that he rewards, he blesses those who diligently seek him, right? We need to hear those encouraging words. Uh, and we need to hear it from the whole council of scripture. Uh, Job had made some kind of blanket statements. God gives and God takes away. God blesses and he curses. Well, that, that's not the whole council of scripture. Right? There's a whole lot more to that story, right? That, that's really not the picture of God. Right? We need to dig into the word and help point people to God and really in- discover and encounter who he really is as he's revealed himself in scripture. Now, of course, if people don't believe the authority of where they don't take the scripture seriously, it's going to be hard. But for especially our friends who value the revelation of scripture, um, there's great comfort in that. But here's the problem. Okay, So they need, they need the word. They need to be directed into Scripture to see who God is and to be encouraged that he's not like they think he is, right? That he's better, that he's good, that he loves them, he's with them. But here's the trick, okay? We just talked about not being superior, not lecturing, not just giving cheap advice. How do we do this, right? How do we encourage people with the word without sounding superior, without sounding arrogant, it would sound, sound like we're, we're speaking for God. Just take it from me, right? How do we, how do, we do that? Well, um, I think it goes this way, right? Before we get there, before we start quoting Bible verses, which may be helpful, but before we go there, back up just a little bit, and I think we need to be a friend who will understand what they're going through. Okay, be a friend who first off and foremost will take the time to listen to really what's going on and just understand what they are what they are wrestling with. And by that I don't mean just understand their circumstances, uh, not just understand enough of their situation to try to fix their situation, but to understand deeply enough to really get what they're feeling, right, what they are really struggling with. Uh, and this re- requires a, a special kind of listening skill most of us really need to work on, right? And this kind of listening, first off, is remember when you're talking to somebody who's struggling, they are nothing like you. <laughs> They're nothing like you, right? And it's just our human nature is we want to see everything the way we see it, right? And we want to squeeze people into our, our box of how we see the world, right? If you're married... It's easy to put this to the test, right? Does your spouse, does your husband or your wife see the world the way you do? If you think the answer is yes, you really need to go see a counselor. I mean, because you're really oblivious to what your wife really sees or your husband really sees, right? Now, if you would say, no, not only do we not see things the same, we see things 180 degrees opposite. Anybody there on that one? Like, we never see things the same. Okay, now you're getting closer to the truth, Right? This is like you're, you're, you're dealing with reality, right? And, and, and we need to listen with this assumption that they're nothing like me. 
like what I, what, how I see the problem and how I perceive what's going on is not how they see it. And the only way I'm going to understand what they're experiencing is if I really listen. And if I really get past just the superficial facts of the story into what they are really wrestling with. And Job's friends never did that, right? They assumed and, and they only saw the superficial events going on and they thought that was all. They didn't, had no idea with what Job was really wrestling with. And Job was wrestling with some very significant, important things. And it actually would have helped them challenge their own faulty view of God if they had got into Job's struggle, right? If they'd actually got into seeing what Job saw, they would have actually grown. And they would have had a kind of understanding that wouldn't maybe have helped solve any problems, but would have given them an incredible compassion and empathy for Job, right? And instead of giving cheap advice, uh, in the end they may have just said, you know, Job, I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions. I think we need to seek God and, and have him teach us because we don't know, right? Second skill, we need to listen to the heart, not the details of the story, right? Listen to the heart, not the details of the story. One of the hard things with understanding is that oftentimes we don't agree with their, their take on the story because how we saw the events unfold are different, Right? And so we can get really hung up on debating the, the, the details, right? Well, it didn't happen that way. We didn't go there. We did, that didn't happen, right? And when we do that, what do we do? Well, we end communication. It stops right there. They're like, oh, okay, well, all right, fine, right? It's over, right? Because we were so worried about the details, right? Forget the details, right? They don't matter, what you need to hear and listen is the heart issue, the emotions, what they are struggling with deep inside. Right? The, the details of the story don't matter. The goal is to understand what they are feeling. Right? Job felt that he was being wrongly accused and that he was suffering for some crime he did not commit. Right? And his friends can never get to the point of affirming those feelings. Saying, hey, Job, we hear you. You feel like you need vindication. Right? They could never get there. They were too busy trying to solve a different problem. Uh, thirdly, uh, as we grow to understand and hear their heart, we need to affirm what we are hearing by reflecting back to them our understanding. And again, you don't have to agree with them. Right? Uh, this is especially important in marriage, right? where you just may not agree with your wife or your husband's take on things, but there's incredible power if you can just say to them, you know, it sounds like you're just feeling really frustrated because you heard me say something that I, you think I don't care about you, right? Um, now, you may not agree with that uh, fact, but you can affirm what they're feeling. And there's incredible power in that. There's incredible, actually, encouragement in that. When people know you care enough to listen and understand what they are feeling, right? There's great encouragement in that. Uh, and then finally, uh, a friend who will point, point, us, point, point them to God, right? And I think as the deal is once you've really invested the time and energy to listen and to hear and to understand, I think you do have a voice to speak the word into people's lives, right? 
but, but not as advice, right? Not as, as the authority who knows the better way, but as code, uh, as friends who are journeying together and searching for truth together. And you say, you know, I don't know the answers, but, you know, this, this Bible verse just came to my mind. And instead of being the authoritative voice of God, say, hey, this is what the Bible says, and let God speak for himself through Scripture, right? Let him speak through himself through, through Scripture. Um, we don't know how it would have uh, ended for Job because that wasn't the script, <laughs> right? But uh, imagine how this could go in your own relationships, right? Uh, as, as we help people come to uh, the encouragement of, of the revelation that God is a God who loves us. And suffering never has anything to do with his, his love for us. His love is undisputed, and it's proved at the cross. Right? Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.